This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the best of First Up for Thursday the 17th of June, call Katrina Bat and Aho. In today's pod, we break down the chances of the Black Caps beating India this weekend. Older residents in the county's Manukau DHB catchment have been waiting more than 10 weeks for a COVID jab. We find out why. And Sports Minister Grant Robertson tells us why there's no more money left down the back of the couch for Team New Zealand. But first, each Thursday, we zoom off to a different part of the country to get some juicy regional news from the local democracy reporting programme. Today, it's Marlborough's turn, and LDR's Chloe Ranford told our host Nathan Aradidi about housing and development issues being tackled by the local council. So the Marlborough District Council here is actually looking for ways to tackle the region's housing crisis, and it has seven ideas on how to do that, one of them being to develop sections. The idea is the more sections there are, the more houses there are, and the more houses there are, the more affordable the housing market becomes. It's a solid idea, but developers came forward at long-term plan hearings earlier this month just to basically say no. To put it simply, developers have had a bad past experience. The council used to be their biggest rival, and that rival was also the one to decide what land was rezoned and when, and they set the rules for everyone else's resource consents. So one developer even went on to say he didn't bother developing houses when the council was in the subdivision game. So it's an interesting debate, and the council is going to think more of it and come up with a decision. So it's a bad idea for developers because they're losing business, but it could actually mean more houses being built, which I guess for the general population, that's what we want, right? Because how often do we see stories you know, where house prices are just so huge because of a lack of supply? Very true. Also, there's a $10 million hole in the council's roading budget after Waka Kotahi what, took, uh, told it to tighten the purse strings. What's that about? Yeah, so the council here thought it would have $53.6 million to put towards its roads over the next three years, with just over half of that coming from NZTA. But earlier this month, NZTA told the council it couldn't afford to fund the full package that the council wanted, which has left it scrambling to rejig its roading spend to cover the basics. Roading bosses have said that it could cause failures across Mulber's roading network because there's only enough funds at the moment to maintain the existing roads, not upgrade them. So if something fails, the council won't have much to put towards fixing it. It's put aside $5 million for a rainy day, but the council thinks this pot of money won't last without NZTA's extra support. Uh, and lastly, I hear the white baiters aren't too happy about some new rules. What, what's these new rules they're not so happy about? Oh, they're not too happy at all. <laughs> the council has proposed closing a uh, permit which allows campers to camp near the mouth of a popular river here during the white baiting season after residents pointed out that the permit might not be appropriate anymore. The white baiting season traditionally has run for about four months, which is far longer than what the council actually allows under its freedom camping bylaw, which is a maximum of two days. There's also the concern as well that the existing freedom camping site at the river mouth only allows for 75 campers and the council tends to hand out about 78 permits each year. So if you do the quick maths, it's possible for the permit holders to take up all the spaces for four months in that one campsite, which the council just doesn't want to see happen, of course. Who's white baiting for four months? 
That's, that's a remarkable. <laughs> that's a, at least there's a commitment. Take I'm going to commit a third yeah. of the year to being there, catching these little fish. I know many of them are actually seniors making the most of their retirement, which obviously leads to the question of what impact this will have. And you know, one couple I spoke to, they drive all the way up from Christchurch to do this four months worth of wife baiting. Hmm. They've been visiting for the past four years. They said they spent about three thousand six hundred in the region last year, and if you times that by seventy-eight, which is the average number of permits the council hands out each year, then that's two hundred eighty thousand dollars in a year, which might might no longer exist. So yes, there's possible impacts to the permit being taken away. That was LDR Marlborough reporter Chloe Ranford. The World Cricket Test Championship final between the mighty Black Caps and the Minnows India get underway at the Southampton Rose Bowl from tomorrow, Friday. With so many variables and possible outcomes, we thought it would be good to catch up with cricket statistician Ollie Stevenson. The first thing I really want to know, and I'm, I'm a bit haunted by this, is what happens if it rains and it's a draw? It's not, like, what, what happens? Yeah, good question. One worth definitely touching on. Um, this test is a little bit special. Uh, in the sense they have actually allocated a sixth rain day. So while the no more than the usual 450 overs are allowed to be bowled in the game, if we do lose any time during to rain, um, they will be allowed to play into the sixth day in an attempt to get a result. Um, and Black Caps fans will also be relieved to know that there's no surprise count bat method in store. Um, Good. The final will simply end in an, an anticlimactic draw and an equal, an equal share of that prize money. Oh, can you imagine that? It's gone for this long, this test championship. <laughs> We've thought about it, and it gets rained out, uh, and it's yeah, a draw. Yeah, it would be a bit of a shame. It'd be horrible. Um, yeah, I mean, I know that in the, in the future there have been people calling for maybe they should make this test final into a test series um, mm. in a better way to maybe get a result. Do you know what it is? We'll be the world test champions per capita, is what we will be, because <laughs> that's, how, that's how we like to do it in New Zealand. Hey, um... I'd, I'd, I would normally ask you about the stats and figures you've been looking at and asking, um, what have you found the most interesting there? Like, what, what's the most interesting stat that you would find or maybe the most surprising about the two teams? Um, uh, so it was part of my research. I've sort of built a, a match simulation engine that will allow you to put you know, the two teams into it and it'll spit nice. out a result. And I think what I found is surprising is I actually have New Zealand as about 60% to 40% favourites for the match, um, which I think would surprise a number of people. But it just goes to show how strong New Zealand numbers currently are and how they stack up against uh, some of the world's best in India. That's amazing. That's, that's pretty cool because I don't think any, I think everyone's just looking at India and thinking they're, you know, the powerhouse that comes through. Yeah, I, I see a lot of um, angry cricket fans around the world going, well, you know, New Zealand, they're, they're, just, they're just at-home bullies. They're always playing in their own conditions. Um, you know, this, they're just the bene- beneficiaries of playing a lot at home. What do, what do you say about that? Oh, I mean, have we been fortunate to have played a lot of matches at home over the last few years? Um, yes, absolutely. But to be blaming, uh, I think, it on scheduling in a year that's been affected by COVID, um, I think it's a bit rough. And, and you certainly can't deny that New Zealand's been a really world-class outfit over the last three or four years. Um, for example, I mean, we've, we've lost one home test series in the last five years, and that, that was against South Africa in 2017. That's the last time we even lost a test match at home. Uh, on the other hand, you have teams like Australia who have lost three home test series in the last five five or so years, and they've won a grand total of zero away series. So I, I think that maybe angry cricket Twitter could be better directing their energy at the ITC and lobbying that New Zealand maybe gets more opportunities to play overseas. Um, and maybe could we please stop having these two test match series and New Zealand might get the chance to play three or maybe even four tests in a, in a, in a series. 
That's cricket statistician Ollie Stevenson. The Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern will reveal today, Thursday, how the COVID-19 vaccine rollout will work for people in Group 4, that's the general population who so far haven't been eligible for the jab. The Director-General of Health, Ashley Bloomfield, gave a glowing update on Wednesday on the country's progress, revealing close to 900,000 doses have now been administered and more than 320,000 people have had both shots. In Group 2, that's frontline workers and people living in high-risk areas, 333,000 people have now had the first dose and 238,000 have had both. But it's not all been smooth sailing in parts of counties Monaco, where people over 65 or with underlying health conditions have been eligible to be vaccinated since March. Our reporters Carmina Blewett and Ella Stewart took a road trip out to Auckland's southern boundary to hear how people have found the experience of getting the COVID-19 vaccine. On the streets of Pocino, on the outskirts of the county's Monaco DHB catchment, people aged over 65 have been eligible for a COVID-19 vaccine now, since the end of March. But there's a sense the rollout for those in Group 2 has been a bit hit and miss. Local couple Aaron McTavish and Philip Henry say they've heard zilch. I assume the government are going to inform us and let us know when it's our turn. My doctor's just down here and his is in Pukekohe, but they haven't mentioned anything no. to me or to him about a vaccination. So. I, ha- I haven't uh, heard from anyone who's got it, but no one, they don't, no one actually talks about it. But no. I'm assuming if people get it they would say I've had my vaccination, but... Yeah. I've heard nothing from no one, so the Indian strain's a bit of a worry. If that comes to New Zealand, that, that could be a bit of a disaster. So. In Pukekohe, residents are hopeful they'll be next in line. Kathy Antonovich has her scheduled for this Sunday, but she says it's been a long wait. I got my flu injection first, and then the lady at the doctor's room said, wait two weeks, ring this number and book in, and that's exactly what I did. They gave me an option of two two venues and anyway I got in on Sunday first one on Sunday and I rang up on um, Monday and I got in on Sunday and so did you get a letter in the mail or was it just that your doctor told you no no letters no correspondence yet but the guy was very useful on on the phone very helpful and he sent me a text and some phone numbers to ring if you want to cancel or got problems or whatever but because I have a husband who who has a lung problem, so I don't want to catch it and bring it home and then have to kiss him goodbye. So yes. I guess I, I'm taking that responsibility. The region has been given priority for the vaccine due to its high number of managed isolation facilities and the many travellers coming through Auckland Airport in Mangari. The medical practices first up visited all said they've had lots of inquiries from patients about the vaccine, but so far, no news from the government on their role in the rollout. And some are losing their patience. This woman, who asked not to be named, says she might just turn up to a clinic to get a vaccine if she doesn't get the call soon. I don't want COVID because I got swine flu in 2009 and I just wanted to die. I'm not joking, you just wanted to die. It was You were so sick. So I'll definitely be getting I've had my flu shot and then I've got to wait two weeks and then I can go and get my COVID. So I'll just Google somewhere and ring them and make an appointment hopefully. So you just think you might just rock up? Yep, yep, yep. That or make an appointment, because I believe Highbrook 
there's been a big wait, it's been a real shamble someone said to me and I think you can go to to Kofi and also there's a place there in Waikato so I'll probably go there. I'm 65 plus so hopefully I do, yeah. Speaking to media yesterday, the Director General of Health, Dr Ashley Bloomfield, said there has been keen focus on counties Manukau. In Group 2, 333,000 first dose and around 238,000 fully vaccinated. And Group 3, it's about 145,000 have had their first dose and 34,000 fully vaccinated. And Group 4, it's around 35,000 have had their first dose and about 4,500 who are fully vaccinated. He expects all Aucklanders over 65 to be invited to have their vaccine by the end of the month. Well, our overall vaccination proportions at the moment are um, you know, about 6% fully vaccinated, 11%. That's across the whole population. Clearly, South Auckland has been a focus, and the effort continues there. And I know that the, the DHB there uh, and the providers continues to reach out into that you know, the wider South Auckland community, including the over 65. So um, I'm not sure exactly what the figure is, but uh, it will be increasing all the time. It remains a so figure. You're comfortable with where it is at now? Oh, well, I, I'll, I'll be more comfortable when it's even higher, but um, I think, you know, very good progress and it, it remains a focus uh, and we'll look to get it as high as possible over the coming weeks in, in particular. As, as I said earlier on, um, everyone in Auckland over 65 is expected to be invited in the wider Auckland region um, within the next week or two. Further up the road in Manurewa, staff at the Te Manurewa Tanga o Tamapohore Marae are preparing for a high-profile guest tomorrow. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern will get her first shot of the Pfizer vaccine here in front of the country's media. But waiting in line to get his second shot today was David Franklin from Mangatafiri. Yeah, my wife's in there and I'm going over shortly, but she's, um, she's going to let me know and I'll leave the dog in the car. We've had our first vaccine over there and it's excellent. They're so well organised and polite. We've had the first one and we've come back today for our second one. Yeah, they, they gave us a little card thing. One mother and her husband were relieved to have had the vaccine and praised the efforts of the marae and the staff. Yes, we have. Yeah, all done. Everyone had a role and um, they seemed to do it very smoothly. We had to ring because we have a, a daughter going through chemotherapy so they allowed us to come in early and get ours. So yeah, we rang up. And that was probably four weeks ago, so we had to wait four weeks. So we find out how the vaccine rollout for the general population in Group 4 will work. But what about those mentioned in Ella and Carmina's story? They're in Group 2, and many thousands still haven't been vaccinated or had an invitation to be vaccinated. Here's Deputy Prime Minister and Sports Minister Grant Robertson. Yeah, and look, we never said from the beginning of this that we would finish one group and then start the next one and then finish that and then start the next one. That would that would slow things down significantly as we as we followed up, you know, people at an individual level. What the individual DHBs are doing is working through Group 1, Group 2. Clearly in the South Auckland region, we had a lot more border workers, so the Group 1 workers then had been expected, but that is now being worked on Group 2 and now moving into Group 3. There are one or two people coming through who are in Group 4 who, for a variety of reasons, might have been picked up at this point. They may have been the partner of another member in, a, in another group or family member or have been you know, picked up in, a, in an ad hoc way. Ultimately, each DHB is responsible for that rollout plan, and I know that in the South Auckland area, they're a little behind where they wanted to be, but they feel confident that they'll be able to catch up and get through 
all of those people in, in group three as soon as possible. Right, so because um, some of the doctor's surgeries were telling us they didn't have information about their role uh, in the rollout. So is that up to their, their local DHB to have sorted that out with them already? It is indeed, and each DHB has been working through with GP um, clinics as to what their role will be. That role will vary from place to place. Some clinics won't be as appropriate as others to run large-scale vaccination programs. But yes, you're right, each DHB has that job. And, and, you know, at the moment, the the centres are largely purpose-built community ones, and that's important to make sure that we will purpose, you know, redesigned community ones that are fit for purpose. But we do want... GP clinics involved and they should be expecting contact from their DHB. Mm. Now, hot topic that's been going on, obviously the Border Team New Zealand rejecting $99 million, a joint offer between the Auckland Council and the Crown as well to host the America's Cup. They're not getting a lot of love from the public and a lot of people you know, feeling they're being quite greedy with that. You must have felt that $100 million was a pretty decent amount of money to, to help them out when it was offered. Yeah, well, look, obviously, working with the Auckland Council, we put our best foot forward. You know, there's been significant investment in the America's Cup over a long period of time by governments, and most recently, about $130 million went in to getting ourselves prepared and ready for, for this latest defence of the Cup. And so, you know, we thought that was an offer that was suitable. Team New Zealand have obviously said today it's not enough for them, and that's their right. And we obviously wish the team well. Um, I've heard Grant Dalton clearly say that there is still some prospect of it being held in New Zealand, and I'm sure many New Zealanders would want that. But ultimately, we have to make a decision on how much money we've got available. There's always many other other calls on that money and the amount that we've already put in. You know, and I think of um, you know one of the biggest um, sporting tournaments we'll ever see in New Zealand, which will be the FIFA Women's World Cup in 2023. We're putting about 25 million in total into that, so I think it's a, it's actually a really significant investment we've made in the America's Cup. I'd love to see it still here in New Zealand, but um, I think we've we've reached the limit of what we can offer. So the board of Team New Zealand, I, th- I think they said they wanted closer to 200 million there as well. So that that's a wee way off. And you just mentioned, you know, fantastic tournaments, the FIFA Women's World Cup coming up. We've got a you know the the Rugby World Cup as well, the Women's World Cup too. Do, does that mean that that money now can maybe move to events like that? Is I mean, is is that how the dispersion dispersion of money works? If I've just yeah. given it a word, <laughs> yeah, no, not quite. Um, I mean, we obviously look at each case on its merits, and and that's the money that we've put in, and we've been successful in in bidding for that um, FIFA Women's World Cup and and obtained it. So, I mean, we look at each individual um, tournament, look at what we can get from it, both in terms of sporting, cultural, economic benefits. And as I say, over the years, the America's Cups had really significant investment. This would, would have been another mm. very significant investment. But we look at each case and each kind of tournament and, and see what we can do to assist. You know, had the expectation been that when Team New Zealand won that America's Cup back in March that they'd hold it here again in 2024 from from you and the government? Because I think for a lot of the public, we felt that that was what was going to happen. Certainly what we wanted. And, you know, we, we've been in good faith negotiations with Team New Zealand over recent weeks to see what we could do. And, you know, and I believe them that they set what they think is the budget they require to run an event. It's just simply more than we have available and more than we think we can justify to the New Zealand public. So, you know, I don't I don't think there was any lack of interest in it from Team New Zealand. Northland Council and ourselves wanted to be a part of it. But ultimately, you know, the numbers have got to add up on both sides. We've put our best foot forward and, and as you know, Team New Zealand wanted more. So um, we wish them well. I hope it's still held in New Zealand. But if it's not, in the end, we've done what we can to try and uh, try and keep it here.
Hey, would the government set to apologise for the dawn raids of the 1970s? There's been calls to grant amnesty to the 10,000 or so overstays in the country to allow them to stay. Would you be in favour of that? Yeah, look, uh, and that's not something people should be expecting uh, announcements on at any point soon. Um, from time to time, there have been amnesties, and I think the most recent one I can recall was in about 2000, in the year 2000. We are doing a major immigration reset piece of work that Minister Chris Farfoy is leading, and I think you know that's where our focus is in terms of immigration. We're looking at our settings across the board, but in terms of the the dawn raid apology, I mean our focus there in, in the first instance is the apology itself. Um, this was a real stain in New Zealand's history. It's something that you know I think. It's well past time, in fact, to be apologised for. We can't take away the hurt, but we can start the process of understanding and, and, and doing our best to, to be able to make up for that. And obviously the apology itself will take place on the 26th of June and, and people will be able to see there how we're, how we're making that a meaningful apology. I see stuff reported that Immigration New Zealand still carrying out raids on overstayers at dawn, though. Will you be looking into that? Yeah, look, I, I would totally reject that that's anything like what we're talking about with the dawn raids here. Obviously, you know, there are still immigration rules and, and immigration will from time to time visit people to, to have those conversations. But they're nothing of the sort that were being talked about with the dawn raids with, you know, random knocking on doors and Alsatian dogs and, and people being targeted simply because of their ethnicity. That's nothing like what um, happens today. There are enforcement provisions but the dawn raids were a very different thing and something that New Zealand has thankfully left well in the past, but now is the time for us to, to put our apology forward for it. All right, Minister of Sport, let's puff our chest out here. Let's just get <laughs> completely parochial. This weekend, New Zealand, population 4.9 million, taking on India, population 1.4 billion, the World Test Championship final. I mean, how is it the little country at the bottom of the world were able to produce a team as classy as those black caps? Yeah, isn't it amazing? And it's, you know, cricket fans, I know, know this, but this is a real moment for us to take a step back and just think what a golden age this is with this team. You and I, Nathan, probably remember the 1980s um, teams yes. and they were amazing and, and they were dominant in many times during that, during that decade. But I think, you know, this is a team that across the park is just showing um, an incredible degree of talent and commitment and determination and to see a team with six of them out still win against England. So I think it's a very, very special group of players. I think they've developed an incredible culture, starting with Mike Hesson and Brendan McCullum and following through now to Gary Stead and, and Kane Williamson. They play for each other as much as they play for New Zealand and themselves. So, yeah, remarkable. It's something to be very, very proud of. I mean, if, if we get the win... Uh, surely you'd get behind calls for the Black Caps to be included in more test series, right? I mean, we'd be kings of the world. Well, undoubtedly. And, you know, obviously the politics of cricket um, well and truly rival the politics of politics. <laughs> and so there would be um, some interest, I'm sure. I mean, the ICC test schedule does see some teams playing a lot more often than other teams. And obviously the big three with India, Australia and England tend to dominate a lot of the decisions. But I do think those teams want to play New Zealand as well. I know the Indian team... And the Indian fans particularly enjoy seeing New Zealand play. And so I'm sure the Test Championship final um, will be something that will be viewed very heavily there. But, you know, what an occasion and something um, something for New Zealanders to really look forward to. Deputy PM Grant Robertson. Thanks for listening to the best of First Up. Matewa.